1: show with Richard Seren from Zuma radio am 740 and uh,
2: welcome to the broadcast for Sunday February the 12th 2012 speaking of 2012 and of course we'll be revisiting this topic all year long taking it right down to the wire winter solstice 2012 uh, because we're all sitting in on the edge of our seats, walking on eggshells. What's going to happen on that day, according to the Mayan Long Calendar? Uh, but uh, we'll, we will uh, dedicate another uh, portion of the program tonight. Uh, Frank Joseph, one of my favorites, uh, former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, will be uh, by, he's got a brand-new book out, uh, uh, called Alien, uh, sorry, 2012, Alien Revelation. And get this, this should be fun. In this uh, book it's a a fictionalized account of a true story uh... in order to protect the uh... the names of the uh... uh... the innocent but he ties together the alien abduction phenomenon along with pyramid power and the mayan twenty twelve calendar and astronomy and uh... he'll do it all uh... in about f- fifty five minutes tonight <laughs> around midnight and uh... just before midnight our uh, paranormal investigator rosemary ellen guiley who joins us the second sunday of every month will be here uh, you know, she's been uh, uh, talking a lot about uh, the jinn, and I'm not talking about uh, uh, the alcoholic beverage. Uh, these are sort of, uh, well, the Quran mentions uh, jinn, that they're, they're made of smokeless flame, uh, uh, scorching fire. They're like human beings. Uh, they can be good. They can be evil. Uh, you know, we're all familiar with uh, uh, genies. Well, the jinn, she believes, are an actual uh, paranormal phenomenon. And she's been uncovering all of these encounters that people are having with the gin and another one in Winnipeg very recently. So we'll talk to Rosemary Ellen Guiley about that before I get to my next guest though. Uh, let me just, uh, if, uh, the mighty Aphrodite is out there listening. My, my beloved, uh, two days of course away from Valentine's day. I send my, my love. I say, if she's out there listening, uh, she should be landing in Vienna about now. Uh, impeccable timing that mighty Aphrodite has she's heading into Athens as we speak by way of Vienna as that country is literally erupting but I I know uh, things are always you know in the media portrayed uh, much worse than they are I was in Greece in November and of course then we were told don't go don't go uh there was a little a little uh, protest uh around the uh the, the parliament building and and that was about it and uh, uh anyway our, our course of course our prayers are, are with uh the people in Greece tonight. Uh, if you haven't heard, uh, the uh, the Greek Parliament has passed the coalition government there has passed by a fairly wide margin a yet another round of severe austerity measures, which will secure, hopefully, about 170 billion dollars uh, U.S. in uh, bailout funding, uh, which means that the Greek government is going to have to uh, chop about one in five civil service jobs and uh, probably cut the minimum wage by about one-fifth tough times ahead uh, for the greeks Uh, but the mighty aphrodite is um, heading into athens Uh, and of course i send my love and uh, take care of yourself please be careful keep your head down stay away from the parliament buildings and just get on uh, that bus and head straight to kalamata uh, where um, we have a family waiting for her all right Uh, february 12th if that sounds familiar of course it is Lincoln's birthday. The 16th president was born on this day, I believe, 1809. Now, uh, we, um, when we talk about Lincoln, of course, we talk about the tragic end, uh, not only about the uh, uh, you know the great, uh, the great speech-making and uh, the, the, the travails of his presidency, of course, when Brother uh, was fighting against Brother during the, the Civil War. We also talk about what happened at uh, the Ford Theater, and most of us have come to to learn or 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 understand or believe that the man holding the the fatal weapon that night was John Wilkes Booth while well, his hand was on the weapon but the question that we always ask on this program is all right but whose hands whose fingers were on the trigger it's not Just the gunman, you have to step back and look at the shadowy figures behind the gunman to really understand. And my next guest has really done an amazing job at doing just that. Paul Serup is an independent researcher and author based in Prince George, B.C. He spent 22 years, some of you listening are not 22 years old, he has spent nearly a quarter century researching this material we're about to talk about. And the ori- original research needed for his book, Who Killed Abraham Lincoln, brought him to libraries, archives, museums, cemeteries, and communities such as St. Cloud and St. Paul, Minnesota. I know you're listening tonight, St. Cloud and St. Paul. Chicago, Springfield, and Urbana, Illinois. St. Louis, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, New York City, and Canadian locations as well. And uh, it's a great pleasure to have Paul Serap on the conspiracy show. Paul, how are you? Very good. How are you? Very well. We need to just launch right into this. There's a lot of ground to cover, not a lot of time. First, uh, obviously, you're standing on the shoulders of uh, the work uh, here of one Charles Chinique. And I think many people listening would be shocked uh, to know about Charles if They haven't heard of him. I hadn't heard of him, which is a shame. North America's most famous ex-priest and, I believe, to date, Canada's number one all-time best-selling author. Yeah. Who was Charles Chiniquet?
3: Well, uh, yeah, he's the person who inspired um, me to do what I did. Um, he was born in Quebec the same year as Lincoln, um, a little bit later, and he um, uh, grew up in a, in a French-Canadian Catholic home, and he uh, his uh, His father died when he was young. he went to live with an uncle and he ended up uh, going into the Catholic priesthood. He became a Catholic priest and he then he then became convinced of the um, effects of alcohol on society and how how it 's very detrimental effects and he became a temperance um, uh, campaigner, much to his uh, associates in in the priesthood, to their sort of uh, dismay and but he kept on with it, and by the mid nineteenth century, he had persuaded roughly half of
2: Quebec to give up drinking that 's power that 's influence that 's a- amazing amazing eloquence too. why why just let me if I could interject briefly uh, you, you said something that uh, caught my attention uh, much to the consternation of his um, his fellow priests, why would yeah. they object to his work in 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 that area
3: Maybe they liked uh, uh, he he says they they liked to drink and and some of them not all but some some did and and felt that he was a fanatic they evidently uh, many or, or there were some of them that came back came around when there was he had, he was having such a dramatic effect in in Quebec and he was also a cam- he campaigned in the United States and uh, I believe in other parts of Canada and he was actually given an award by the Canadian Parliament and and by the city of Montreal and uh, the things like that and he most Quebec households had a portrait of him in their household by that time hmm. so he was a very famous man hey, was and he a, then,
2: was he a deeply spiritual man
3: yeah he was um he was in well it depends how you define that, but he was troubled by things that he saw in the catholic church but he and he was troubled when he went through his education as a priest because he he he, he saw the conflict between what the church was teaching him and what his own own senses told him and what reason told him but he and he had problems with celibacy he had problems with um uh, doing whatever he was told you do whatever you're told by your superiors um and and you i got, got to understand like you said this is a huge topic so i may have forgotten some things and uh you know maybe uh, cuz i you know i don't have everything uh sort of in my in my brain to recall but that's that's my that's my uh, okay my statement, yeah, that he and so anyway, he had conflicts, and uh, but I believe he was a very honest and very honorable man, and uh, so he became a priest and uh, was very successful.
2: now he was asked to go down to to Illinois to start yeah. sort of a, a a community down there
3: he was, yeah, the second a bishop of Chicago, uh, Bishop Vandevelde invited him to go down to Chicago or to Illinois, excuse me. To start a French Canadian Catholic colony down there, um, uh, French Canadian Catholics were heading into the United States. They were going to the the uh, the urban centers, and they were quote losing their religion, hmm. and this concerned the Catholic Church. And Encinaque states that it was the plan of the Catholic Church to to you know take places like Illinois, the the, the, the vast untamed prairie and and claim it for the church. And he was part of that plan. So he uh, went down there and he did start a French-Canadian Catholic colony. uh, and He established the town of St. Anne and uh, other communities south of, uh, I believe, southeast of uh, Chicago.
2: Listen, uh, Paul, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll learn how father, Charles Chinique, uh, ran afoul of one of the local bishops, and that that ultimately led to his meeting with uh, being represented by a young Illinois lawyer by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Back with more of the conspiracy show. Who killed Abraham Lincoln? Paul Seraph, independent researcher author, with us on the program. Stay with us. My name is Richard Seraph. Don't go away.
1: Shaking the World and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio AM 740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio AM 740. Uh, welcome back. Uh, Paul Serrett is with us. We're just going to cut you know, right to the chase
2: and hit the high points here. There's there's obviously a huge amount of uh, of information here to be covered, but I, I really want uh, uh, people to leave of uh, this hour with sort of a, a, a an understanding, a, a reader's digest version, so that they can go out and get the book and and dive in with both feet uh, and and really understand sort of the, the fine minutiae here. Uh, because again, uh, Paul Syrup is an independent researcher, author. Uh, who basically spent the last quarter century examining the work of North America's most famous ex-priest, French-Canadian Catholic Charles Chiniquet, who spent about 25 uh, or maybe 50 years, I guess, of his life uh, working on his uh, uh, memoirs. And in those memoirs, uh, Chiniquet really drops a bomb regarding the assassination of his friend Abraham Lincoln. So, Paul, uh, Father Charles ends up in um, Illinois. He runs afoul of the local bishop, who has it in for him. Again, I guess uh, uh, this, is, this bishop is what? He's just a, kind of a ruthless administrator, and for some reason, Chinookay rubs him the wrong way.
3: Well, uh, Chinookay described him as a very tyrannical man. He was uh, Irish uh, Anthony O'Regan, and yeah, he was the third bishop he he actually i mean the uh, not not just chinake but other records say that and actually he had the right to take any catholic property and sell it and do what he wanted with the money and and that's recorded in 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 the catholic sources as well and and he would do that and he took the uh the french church in chicago and and moved it off its uh where it was, moved it to another location, and, and uh, rented it out to a different congregation, and things like that, and it outraged the French, and outraged uh, others. And Chinique was not willing to, uh, you know, he's not the kind of man who would, he, he was willing to take on the bishop, and he did. And it's very, the Chicago Tribune and other newspapers cover this tremendous clash between this celebrated priest and this bishop which resulted uh, in, ultimately, the bishop being summoned to Rome and removed as the bishop of Chicago. But it was a, a tremendous clash, and, 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 and Chinique says that all over the, the, the country, people were interested, you know, Protestants were interested in this priest that wasn't willing to back down uh, from this bishop.
2: I got the sense that here, I mean, here's Chinique taking on a bishop and winning, but I get yeah. the sense that maybe the, uh, when that bishop was recalled... Um, you know, it was done rather begrudgingly. I mean, they were worried about this Chineke's influence.
3: Yes, well, that's what Chineke says. He says that bishops uh, all over the United States, bishops all over, didn't like a Reagan, but they were more worried about Chineke being able to successfully defy his bishop.
2: Now, and, um, uh, I'm sorry to, 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 to just keep pushing forward here, Paul. As I say, no, though, I want to I hit the high points. Sure. Uh, now, the, the bishop, I guess before he left, he tried to uh, uh, prosecute Chinique, what he wanted to set him up on false charges. Is that, is that what happened?
3: Well, he, he got, he said, uh, Chinique says that he said that I will give anything to, to uh, anyone who can get rid of Chinique. This, troubles, this priest caused me more, more trouble than anyone else.
2: This meddlesome oh, priest—that sounds familiar. Rid yeah. me of this meddlesome priest.
3: Yeah. So this, so Peter Spink, um, who was a prominent, uh, well-off Catholic, uh, evidently took up that challenge, and he went after Chineke, uh First, uh, two court actions in Kankakee, uh, which he lost, and, and then the, 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 it was transferred to uh, Urbana, and that's when uh, a stranger came up to Chinookay, and, and Chinookay was. Stunned by the idea that this was being transferred, it would be, cause so much more problems for him. And this stranger said, "You hire Abraham Lincoln; uh, he's the best, the most honest uh, lawyer in, in Illinois." And he did, and and not, and, and Lincoln defended him in two court actions. One of them was the most high-profile libel case in Lincoln's career, and, and big crowds showed up. Actually, not because. Lincoln was involved, but because Chinnaker was involved,
2: oh, that's remarkable. And 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 what year are we talking about? 1840s. We're talking 1856.
3: 1856. So Lincoln was at that time. Four years later, he would be, you know, be in the presidential campaign. Uh, he was sort of at the, you know, the top part of his game. He was sort of the one of the top lawyers in really in, in Illinois.
2: And yet, and yet, he uh, he was sort of. Uh... Under Chinikay's shadow. I mean, Chinikay was the star attraction in that trial.
3: Yeah, it seems in that in that locale. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so there was um, uh, there was a, a a young woman who there, the final case was a, a priest who who stood up and said that basically that, that Chinikay had tried to rape, rape or seduce his sister, and. Uh, a young woman showed up from Chicago that night after the after his testimony and she had direct evidence that uh that he had made an agreement with his sister that they would they would charge Chinake with this and then he would give her land for that now Chinake got an affidavit from that young woman and it's actually uh in the uh Chinake collection in Ontario um, but but that's that's a sworn statement from that young woman about the part she played,
2: well, and really laying bare the deceit, the ruthlessness of, I guess, not only the the uh, Bishop O'Regan, but by extension the, I guess, the the upper echelons of the of the, the church.
3: Yes, and and that's when Chinikay said was after that case, and and that's well documented also in the court record. Um, that 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 there was his case, and, and Lincoln defended him. He said then it was that time that he feared for Lincoln's life because he feared that he had, he had pulled him out of the clutches of these this uh, ecclesiastical machinery that was set up to destroy
2: him. Ecclesiastical machinery. Interesting uh, turn of a phrase there. Uh, 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 Paul Serap is with us. Who killed Abraham Lincoln? Now, uh, so was this... Was this the beginning of a uh, was it a a, a a friendship immediately, or was it a, mainly a, a, a business, a, like an asso- a, a professional association uh, that they had, or or was well, was there a friendship there?
3: I think there was very much a friendship, and and Lincoln said that he he knew of Chinnakay by his reputation as, as his defender of his countrymen, but before he had met him, and no, actually, the evidence shows I believe that. Actually, it was a Canadian, Charles Chiniquet, that was Abraham Lincoln's closest friend.
2: His closest friend. And his how often friend. did Chiniquet travel down to uh, the White House once Honest Abe was the president? I
3: visited him three times in the White House. And it's very interesting. Actually, there's a, an article in the Chicago Tribune about one of his visits to, to the White House while Lincoln was still in office. In 1864, and it's really interesting reading.
2: Well, do, what do we know uh, based on uh, either Chinnakay's writings or what uh, Lincoln may have uh, uh, written about those meetings? What did they talk about?
3: Oh, well, well, uh, Chinique, um wrote about it, and and he said they talked about the part that the Catholic Church uh, was playing in the Civil War, and. And Lincoln said to him, You see, Chinook was this, like Chinook left the Catholic Church two years after the court case. And he was, you know, Lincoln viewed him as, well, you know, you're the, you've been there. You, you know all what goes on in the Catholic Church. So you're the guy I want to talk to about what's, you know, what would be happening.
2: All right. We'll um, take another quick time out, Paul. When we come back, uh, we'll explore exactly what Lincoln was talking about when he referred to the role of the Catholic Church in the Civil War. Back with more. Who killed Abraham Lincoln? Here on the new AM740, Zuma Radio. Stay with us.
1: Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will
2: join us just before the uh, the top of the hour, uh, our paranormal investigator. And then Frank Joseph, uh, ancient American magazine uh, editor-in-chief, former editor-in-chief, to talk about, uh, well, boy, wrapping it all together. Alien abductions, uh, uh, the Mayan 2012 uh, calendar, astronomy. I uh, always look forward to uh, my conversations with Frank. I know you do as well. Right now, uh, Paul Serap is with us, uh, independent researcher, author, uh, based in Prince George, BC. Spent 22 years researching uh, who killed Abraham Lincoln. Uh, now, so what was what was Lincoln and 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 uh, um, talking about when they were when they when they were saying that the Catholic Church had this role in the Civil War? What 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 was meant by that?
3: Well um again I apologize for maybe some things I forgot like just to give the the listeners some idea my book comes with a CD contains a court record it's it's about 3800 pages in total um, like my 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 files are about 3 or 4 feet thick my so Lord. I don't I don't uh, just to get back to your question one of the the, the things Chinake talked about in his first visit was uh, uh, Lincoln said to him i'm so puzzled about the fact that it's been widely reported that i president lincoln was a catholic and i left the catholic church hmm. and and chinake said well uh, that is to uh... excite the passions of um, the murderers that they hope to find that you are a apostate that you are a heretic who according to the laws of the church should die That's really interesting, and I find that the historical record says that's correct, that the allegation was made that he was a Catholic, and he was never a Catholic. So, uh, to me, I I found that very interesting.
2: Well, you know, and and, I mean, today, though, nothing has changed, really. Today, you know, they're making a great deal about the fact that uh, Mitt Romney is uh, is a Mormon, and, of course, we had earlier, we had the whole debate, uh, people questioning uh, uh, whether... Uh, Barack Obama was he a Muslim? Is he really a Christian? Is, I mean, so nothing <laughs> really has changed, has it, in that regard?
3: No. Well, I guess um, it, it, they, yeah, they talked about uh, one. They talked about the role that the Catholic Church was playing, uh, and 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 then they they talked about. Chinakay said that you know the, the civil war would have never started without. The South, without Jeff Davis being assured of help uh, of the arms of, of France and 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 whatever help they they could be, um, that the, the the Catholic Church could help them. And there's there's good evidence that um, the Catholic Church did indeed help the South. You know, Catholic historians admit that um, the Pope sent a letter to Jeff Davis, and he called him. Uh, illustrious and honorable, and the president of the Confederate States of America, uh, the New York Times, uh, 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 basically stated that indeed the Pope had recognized uh, the
2: Southern Confederacy. Well, let's remember, of course, uh, uh, I don't, I don't need to tell you this, Paul, but I guess I'm just talking generally that the, that you know the Vatican. Um, is a political entity, uh, um, and, and, and uh, neither you or I think we would agree. We're not it's, we're not engaging in, in Catholic bashing. It's it's a beautiful faith. Uh, I believe that sincerely. We're talking about individuals here at that time that were uh, involved uh, in the ecclesiastical machinery, as you point uh, as you put it. Uh, but and and so the Vatican essentially is this state, and states have interests. They have spheres of influence. So. There's nothing really unusual about that, I guess. But I guess the question arises, uh, uh, given that the, the war ostensibly was about slavery. There, are, there obviously were other issues. The industrialized North wanting to, to, um, to capitalize on the, uh, the resources of the South and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, but, so why would the Catholic Church at that time be interested in supporting the South?
3: Well, um I I mean I think we we, we may have a d- divergent opinion. Chinnake believed it was because the Catholic Church um was concerned about the United States as a as a as an entity because the United States at the time was a great experiment in democracy, and that is why I think there's such an ongoing fascination with the Civil War and with Abraham Lincoln. Like do you know how many books have been written about Abraham Lincoln? thousands I'm guessing 17000
2: my lord
3: there's there's a hundred you know plus every year written about him and so there's this ongoing fascination because i think the civil war was the sort of deciding point in whether this experiment in self-rule of the of the you know of the masses could succeed compared to the divine right of kings uh, which was sort of the European model. And so, um, and, and if, you, if you have this, you know, idea of democracy, um, I would suggest that it would take, you know, power away from institutions like the Catholic Church. And, and, you, know, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the Pope, um, unfortunately, you know, he said some pretty um, negative things about democracy. Um, at the time in 1865, and and so that's my that's what Chinook said um, that the concern was that uh, of, of what the United what the United States
2: represented. So it wasn't Lincoln per se. It was uh, they wanted to disrupt the republic. They wanted to an end to the republic. It didn't matter who the occupant of the White House was. Uh, they wanted to foment this war between North and South. Get behind the South, and uh, whoever got in their way, well,
3: yeah. I mean, that's well, that's what Chiniquay says. And when you when you uh, look at the evidence, um, you see, you know, Catholic priests giving intelligence, helping out the the South. Um, you have, you know. A, a, uh, things, things like like that, um, and actually some of the communications of, of the Roman. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, some of the some of the communications of the of the prelates talked about countries plural. That there was the Confederacy and there was the the North, um, and you know there was the uh, the the hostility. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but that's what the historical record shows. Of the Catholic Church toward, and Catholics toward, Black people who 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 didn't want to be slaves. I mean, I mean that the, a lot of people look at the Taney, Roger Taney, uh, Dred Scott decision, uh, his decision and his statement that, uh, as chief of the U.S. Supreme Court, that. Blacks had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. And This was a devout Catholic who gave this opinion.
2: Well, regretfully, there were a lot of Christians who held that view, and 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 uh, as hard as it is to believe, uh, still to this day feel that way. So certainly, yeah. the, the you know um, the fact that the Catholic Church at that time held those views, not um, well, certainly was, not a yeah, condemnation of the
3: view was mm-hmm. that. Um, and okay, and 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 not just not just Chike, I found his uh, eminent historians um uh, uh, there's a man called Orestes brownson who's considered in in quarters some quarters to be america 's greatest uh, Catholic intellectual who said that who wrote that uh, no group has been sort of so opposed to to the union's efforts to Survive and and uh, the, and, uh, and the civil war war effort than than the Catholics, uh,
2: to paraphrase him. Uh, Paul Serap is uh, my guest. Who killed Abraham Lincoln? And uh, 22 years in the making, of this book, and uh, really studying the work of Charles Chinnikay, North America's most famous ex-priest. He became known, I guess, as North America's Martin Luther when he became a, a Protestant. Mm-hmm. Uh, switched over to the other side and uh, uh, you know, t- took as many co-religionists with him as he could. Um, and I guess, I mean, were there other attempts to discredit Chinique, either through the courts, or were there other threats against him that, that he mentioned, made mention uh, in his death Yes, moment?
3: yes. He mentions that there was a number of attempts on his life. Um, there was lots of—he uh, he went to court— um, more than 30 times he was he was sued uh, there was all sorts of uh, attempts to to blacken his name and it and it goes on i mean there uh, my understanding is there was a play put on in quebec in, in the 1990s called chinike god's liar you know there's there was uh, a, a lot of efforts and he he experienced uh, he spent the rest of his life uh, one of the things he spent the rest of or the main thing he spent the rest of his life doing after he left the Catholic church was trying to win his co-religionists to the Protestant faith to to simple faith in Christ and he was the uh recipient of some really rough um handling he was he was there was riots and uh and he you know he had rocks thrown at him and uh and he was injured. people that were with him were injured. Uh, the buildings and churches that that he had occupied were were damaged and uh, British troops had to uh, keep him safe on occasion in in quebec and uh, you know so he, he um he definitely was uh um, opposed very actively by the because he was so influential i mean like you said, he's still. Yeah, I uh, my, my understand, Canada's best-selling author of all time. And he became world famous.
2: And that's because his book, My 50 Years in the Church of Rome, it, I mean, it was published, it went into the 70th printing, 70 editions?
3: Yeah, in uh, before his death, so that's like... From it came out in 1885, and he died in 1999. So in 14 years, it had gone through more than 70 editions.
2: My word! And and how? I, I mean, he's talking about his whole life in the Catholic Church in that book, but but how much of that book is actually dedicated to uh, the assassination of his friend President Lincoln and his and his belief that the, the Catholic Church was responsible?
3: Well, specifically, not a huge amount. I mean, it's it's more than 800 pages that book. Um, and a small, a smaller amount is actually. He he talks about the confessional, what role it plays in in the society. He he felt that it was. Um, he talked. He felt it wasn't good. He he talked about sexual scandals, scandals of the priests uh,
2: back back in his day. What was the? I mean, when this book was published. Um, what did you find uh, the, uh, the Chicago Tribune and others were writing, and the New York Times were writing? I mean, did they do a review of this book, and did they mention the passages about Lincoln's assassination?
3: Yes. Uh, I don't know about the New York Times. The, the media of his day, the, the, his, when he died in 1899, his obituary was on the front page of the New York Times. I mean, they, they certainly knew who he was. Um, he was a, you know, very, like I said, world-famous, celebrated uh, ex-Catholic priest. The Chicago Tribune, in I believe it was two years later, I'd have to check the date on that, but recommended that all Americans read his book, 50 Years in the Church of Rome, which uh, made the allegation that it was... Uh, the Catholic Church, that was responsible for Lincoln's murder.
2: What, what is some of the other evidence? Um, let, before I get to that, let me ask you. Uh, I mean, on that fateful day, April 14th, I believe it was, yeah. 1865. Yes. Friday. Yes. Uh, when Lincoln is shot at um, uh, the Ford Theater and then is taken across as the, Pe- the Peterson House, um, where he dies the next, the next day. But what, what did, how did Charles uh, Chinique re- react? How did he react?
3: Oh, I'm sure he was um, in mourning as, as the nation was in mourning. I mean, yeah, this was his, uh, his, his close, extremely best friend, close friend. Um, yeah, and, and American, actually, uh, I think it was, um, at the time, seven, seven, seven million Americans saw his funeral train uh, mm-hmm. or saw his body, one quarter of the American population. Wow. Uh, and and in New York City, it was I think one and a half, two million people came and, and viewed his body. Um, huge, huge, uh, tremendous mourning in the United States. And so, and Chinook was I'm sure um, devastated. And and that's when he uh, decided to go to Washington and do his own investigation. And he um, talked to the top people in the U.S. government. And, and my research um, helped me to identify at least one of them, um, I believe, who and that was actually the man who was in charge of the u s government after Lincoln's Um, death in the hours and actually in the weeks after, and that was the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton.
2: And what did Edwin Stanton um, say about Lincoln's... Well,
3: Chinique doesn't identify the people, but he said the top people in the government that he had confidence told him they didn't have the slightest doubt that it was the Jesuits who were responsible. But they didn't want to start another sort of war between the Protestants and the Catholics. You know the the nation had gone through four years of war, and it was actually still the war wasn 't actually over at that point uh, so uh, they that 's why they didn't um, uh, sort of bring out they said it 's not because of cowardice that we do this because we 're concerned about starting another a different kind of a war that we don't bring this
2: well that's the last thing they need they just they' they're just coming out of a civil war, and uh, the last thing they need is sectarian violence on top of that i mean that probably would have been the end of the republic
3: yeah well it um well i yeah i mean i i don't know, but that was their that was their reasoning and and other historians have brought this out that yes there was uh, you know uh, these things were under the surface but they were there the government didn't want them to to come up and uh, um certainly i found that edwin stanton who again was the really the person running the american government even after the vice president uh, was inaugurated and made president Um, he was doing all he was doing this and he also headed the official US government investigation into the murder of Abraham Lincoln he Edwin Stanton believed that uh, Lincoln's murder was a result of a Catholic plot
2: we'll uh, take a quick time out when we come back we'll talk about uh, some other evidence and I also want to get your take on uh, the theory that uh, John Wilkes Booth um, maybe have even survived was not uh, apprehended and shot by Union soldiers uh, of course of the theory that he um, uh, went on to uh, to London, England before returning to the States and living a very long life and, and what do we make of uh, his association with this mysterious organization called the Knights of the Golden Circle? Is there a paper trail between the Jesuits or the, the Church of Rome and John Wilkes Booth? We'll find out when the Conspiracy Show
1: returns. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740.
2: Uh, Paul Serap stays with us a few moments yet, author of Who Killed Abraham Lincoln? And um, it's interesting, you know, John Wilkes Booth, um, not born a Roman Catholic, uh, Paul, but I'm understanding that by about 1860, he was well on his way to converting to that religion.
3: Yeah, I don't know exactly when he converted. His sister may have um, played a role in that. Uh, she became a Catholic. I think the family were were not, well, they weren't, but uh, they were— Protestants um, but yes he the evidence shows that he became a, a Catholic and this was hidden um, from from uh, from people who even people who are doing research but but uh, there's been, uh, some other evidence that's come to light, and, and it's shown, I believe, that it, indeed he was a Catholic.
2: And had he, I guess, had he not converted, then he never would have been initiated into the Knights of the Golden Circle, which apparently was a Catholic lay organization. Is that true? I mean, do we know that matter of factly?
3: You know, I'm sorry, but I I really don't know that. Um, my I had very sort of specific goals um, in in my research and. I just wanted to know if if he was a Catholic mm-hmm. and you know what sort of basically uh, uh, that how he became one. You know, I'm not. I didn't get a quarter million, half million dollar Canada Council grant <laughs> to go down and spend some quality time in in Washington. And
2: no, no, understood. I, it's interesting though that uh, I mean, it, did you did you come across the uh, in your research the organization that the Knights of the Golden Circle and how yes, that may have figured into? I
3: did. And I don't recollect right off the top of my head, but yes, that that did came come up. But I didn't really. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't pursue it.
2: Well, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm just looking at the the um, sort of the seal right now on the on the internet. The night of the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they were. I guess ostensibly committed to, you know, preserving slavery in the in, in all those lands that were bordering the uh, the Caribbean Sea. That was the so-called Golden Circle. And oh, if really? You, yes, okay. and, and if you look at their seal, you've got uh, you know, you got sort of the skull and the skull and bones, but it looks the it's it's got a cross there that's somewhat similar to the 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 Maltese cross used by the old Knights of Malta. So I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe we're reading too much into that, but it's it's certainly interesting. So, I mean, is there a paper trail between John Wilkes Booth and and, and the Jesuits?
3: Mm, no, he was found to
2: have a Catholic
3: medal on his body. He had. There's an allegation that he made a donation to a Catholic church he was attending. Uh, the Catholic, uh, at least, there's. Uh, one or two points uh, where he was attending this church. Um, his sister says that he was of the Catholic faith. That's what she mm-hmm. she makes um, uh, clear. His associates um, were the Serats. And and others that he associated with were Catholics.
2: So. No relation, by the way.
3: <laughs> Surratt. no, and no, spelled differently. I think. I wondered how that was pronounced. Actually, but, it's
2: Surratt, So,
3: yeah, <laughs> sure.
2: And if it wasn't, it is now.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that that uh, Robert Redford did a movie on Mary Surratt last year.
2: Yes, I heard about that. I haven't out. seen it. Yeah. yeah.
3: So it, yeah, I mean, it's still there's still so much interest in. And
2: this, um and
3: and we're actually we're in the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the Civil War right now.
2: that's right. it's it's um yeah. coming up. so but the um, you know, if if someone's listening to this, they're saying, okay, so John Wilkes Booth, he, he so he was a Catholic, he maybe he had a Catholic medal, um, uh, and they' you know, Chike, obviously, you know, he had an axe to grind. Uh, he, he didn't like the Catholic Church. um, but there's they might be sitting back and saying, okay, but where's the hard evidence? you know, before we, condemn the Catholic Church as being responsible for the death of Honest Abe. Where's the smoking gun?
3: Well, uh, as I said, you know, whenever there's a story on the, the Kennedy assassination, inevitably, or people's disbelief in the government's, you know, official findings, it's inevitably in the article it will say the Warren Commission found it was the work of a lone gunman. And the Warren Commission was the official U.S. government investigation mm-hmm. into JFK's assassination. Well... I point to Edwin Stanton, who was the head of the official U.S. government investigation, and when he thinks it was a Catholic plot, I mean, you kind of say, "Wow!" Yeah. I mean, all yeah. the information revelant, uh, that 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 was, uh, uh, you know, uh, to do with that came to him. Uh, other things are most if not all of the conspirators were Catholics at a time when the Catholics made up 11% of the population mm. in the United States. So they're way overrepresented. represented um, And there's, uh, another thing was the fact that, and Chinique brought this out, was the fact that, now there was four people slated to be murdered uh, that night. It was Lincoln. It was the President, Vice President, Secretary of State, and Grant, who was the head of the U.S. Armies. Grant left earlier the day. that day. Um, Lincoln, as we know, was assassinated. There was an attempt on the Secretary of State that almost succeeded. He was almost killed at the same time, and the person who was slated to kill the Vice President, I believe, lost his nerve and didn't act. But the murders of Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward were talked about hours before in Minnesota, hmm. uh, in a solidly Catholic uh, uh, village uh, in, in rural Minnesota that was not anywhere close to a telegraph or a rail line.
2: What happened to John Wilkes Booth? Was he killed by Union soldiers uh, in the barn, or, or is there reasonable evidence to suggest he may have been spirited away to London?
3: Well. I, again, that's something that I didn't really look at too seriously, but I don't believe so. I, I think that uh, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, I mean, it, the Lincoln presidency was about the Civil War, and, and and actually Lincoln spent more time with him than with any other person, including members of his own family, after he became Secretary of War. He was a very competent, uh, extremely competent, um, extremely valuable um, patriotic, honest man, and he was in charge of of ge- getting these people. and And I don't believe that, and very much hands on. And I don't believe he or or other um, government officials would have, you know, uh, you know played some role in, in you know letting him get away or or you know saying they got him when they really didn't.
2: Well, Paul, listen. Congratulations. This is a culmination of a quarter century of work. You must feel. Um, just terrific about uh, you know uh, seeing it to the end, and um, we can direct people to your website salmova.press.com. S a l m o v a press.com. Can they order the book through there? Uh,
3: no, not right now, but um, it is available through um, Indigo and um, in other bookstores and uh, at Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble online. So and. Yeah, I mean, it's distributed in Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Um, and thank you very much.
2: Well, my um, pleasure. And listen, also, thank you. Of, I mean, for those who maybe, um, you know, are, are not necessarily, they're not, it's not top of mind to learn about Lincoln's assassination, for no other reason to learn about uh, perhaps one of the greatest Canadians that we've never known about, and that's uh, Charles Chinique. Thank you for bringing him to our attention.
3: Oh well, thank you. No, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. All right, no. Paul.
2: Thank again, you very much for thank your you. interest. All right, Paul Serap, who killed Abraham Lincoln? Wow. All right. When we come back, another wow with Rosemary Ellen Guile talking about the gin in Winterpeg.
1: You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740.
2: Welcome back. And uh, coming up... In uh, about 10 minutes' time, we'll check in with Frank Joseph. You uh, probably know him from Ancient American Magazine, and uh, he's put together a wonderful new book, which uh, ties together the alien abduction phenomenon, along with the Mayan calendar. Uh, So I can't wait for that conversation. Uh, Coming up right now, of course, is... American researcher of the paranormal, writer on topics related to spirituality, the occult paranormal. She's written 45 plus books and counting, including 10 encyclopedic works. How many people can even boast having written one? Well, she's written 10, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, her latest um, interest really is investigating encounters with the jinn. And the latest one comes by way of Winnipeg. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you?
4: Hi, Richard. Well, very busy. Uh, I've been pursuing all sorts of case leads, and uh, the one that I wanted to talk about tonight in Winnipeg has a lot of similarities to cases I have collected from America and England as well.
2: You know, uh, w- recently we had you on talking uh, about a couple in um, in uh, Toronto here that uh, sort of contacted you after hearing you on this show, and uh, they had... Um, uh, a problem with um, a Masonic apron, and you sort of concluded that that was a gin. and now we have this case in Winnipeg. It seems to me like, Rosemary, you're really starting to tie a lot of this stuff together and attributing it to you're sort of coming down, sort of eliminating things and, and arriving at the conclusion that the djinn are really responsible for an awful lot of paranormal activity.
4: I do believe that, Richard. The deeper I go into researching the djinn, and comparing them to accounts and descriptions of other entity contact experiences that have different labels on them, um, they're really one and the same. And uh, in the Middle Eastern view, the jinn are responsible for all of the paranormal things that go on. Uh, that's a hard concept for a lot of Westerners to grasp because we tend to compartmentalize our supernatural experiences, and where um, educated that way. If we know anything about the paranormal, that uh, there are distinct differences among entities, and we also tend to view them as in kind of a cookie-cutter fashion, uh, that uh, all, all entities of a certain class act the same way. And actually, I think the case is much different. I do think that the Jin, uh, who are a supernatural race of entities who live in a parallel dimension, They're, they have free will like us. They're varied like us. Uh, they have differing powers and abilities um, and motivations. And uh, many of them want to be in this world and interact with humans, and they do so in a variety of ways. So um, I'm increasingly coming around to the viewpoint that um, many of our paranormal experiences, especially some of the negative ones, are caused by jin who take different forms, and some of that uh, has the purpose of confounding us.
2: Tell us about this, uh, this case in, in Winnipeg.
4: This case is uh, a long-term contact case. Involving a type of jinn that attaches to human beings from birth. In Middle Eastern folklore, everyone is born with a jinn called a kareen, which is a companion jinn, sort of like um, our concept of the guardian angel, only the jinn could be good, bad, ambivalent, or all three of those at any given time. But uh, the companion comes along at birth and stays with a human uh, and provides varying levels of contact. Uh, Sometimes the jinn will try to influence people to good or bad acts. Sometimes they stay in the background and and a person isn't too aware of them. Many of them develop romantic attachments to human beings. And uh, as the human gets older and sexually mature, uh, they will come forward and uh, be sexually aggressive with bedroom visits. And in the Western Uh, tradition, we uh, chalk that up to demons, uh, that people can have um, sexual encounters with demonic entities. This case in Winnipeg involves uh, this particular kind of companion that began showing up uh, in a woman's life. Uh, She's well uh, into adulthood now, but um, she uh, has seen him for most of her life, and it's First manifestation was as a shadow person. And uh, I know that uh, you and I have talked about shadow people in the past. These are dark silhouetted figures that often visit people in their bedrooms. They look like um, tall men wearing coats and sometimes hats. And they're very scary to people. Uh, I think that this is one of the forms of of the djinn. And uh, as she got older, then... uh, he began acting like more of a companion. You know, he would show up more often. He even gave a name. And uh, they will often give names to human beings. Sometimes they're human-sounding names, but I don't think they're the jinn's real names. They're just a name that we can identify them with. Uh, And um, another uh, companion jinn also appears to her adult son. Well, uh, her parents said that this entity had been with her from birth, and uh, sometimes he's quite scary to her. Uh, he's uh, even been angry with her on ty- at times and um, has uh, told her what she can do and what she can't do, uh, and she's not able to, uh, to send him away to get rid of him, and that's the case with these companion jinn; They don't go away.
2: Are these full-body apparitions?
4: Um, they can manifest like apparitions. They can seem to be very solid. Uh, when they have contact with people, such as in a bedroom encounter or a sexual encounter, they feel very real. Uh, there's a tangible physical presence to them. Other times they can um, appear and disappear, much like a ghost. Uh, the shadow man uh, may, might be seen very fleetingly, uh, like out of the corner of your eye or uh, as well as standing in in the bedroom, I think a lot of these encounters occurred during uh, lucid dream states, and um, many of the uh, victims of both shadow people and uh, sexual gin encounters say that um, sometimes they 're not certain whether they 're awake or they're they 're dreaming. The encounter seems to take place in kind of a twilight zone liminal reality and I think that's what's going on in this case that a lot of the uh, encounters that this woman has been having with the uh, the Jin companion do occur during lucid dream states
2: it sounds like it's ramping up though this thing is is, is it's uh, it's about to get violent I sense
4: well uh, the latest email that I received from her I've uh, had quite a series of them and she did offer to she's send me some drawings and even some photographs that she uh, thought had captured the gin. And every time she tries to do it, uh, some equipment fails or uh, the uh, the drawings go missing. These sorts of things are not uncommon in cases like this. And uh, one of the last uh, communiques I had from her, she was planning on uh, taking some trips, and um, she was told by the, the jinn that uh, he would not allow her to go anywhere. Now I have other cases where the jinn do make phone calls, that um, people will get mysterious phone calls and uh, there's a mystery voice on the other end and sometimes the voice identifies itself as uh, the jinn that they're familiar with and sometimes the person just knows it's the jinn. But uh, this is not unusual. It, it sounds very science fiction, but uh, I get independent cases with elements like this reported from all over the world.
2: What are you suggesting uh, to this couple, this uh, woman in, in Winnipeg? What can she do to defend herself?
4: Uh, it's difficult to know sometimes. Uh, there are various ways to deal with unruly gin. Uh, There are rituals and magical uh, and even religious remedies that can be applied to uh, exercise them the way we would exercise uh, demonic entities. But there are a lot of risks in that, and uh, the experts in the literature all attest that it's extremely difficult to dislodge an attached gin. And if you fail, if you try and fail, well, then you've got, like, an angry wasp on your hand. It, it just makes things worse.
2: And hence the title of your recent book, The Vengeful Djinn.
4: The Vengeful Djinn. Sometimes they can be placated. They're very open to bargaining, and uh, that's often what people do is they strike bargains with them uh, to establish some boundaries. The uh, gin in this woman's case uh, told her that he had been assigned just to watch her. That would be the role of most Kareem, and uh, that he had fallen in love with her, and so he was kind of overstepping his bounds. Uh, and her feeling was that um, he could get in trouble for doing so. But, uh, you know, we don't have access to the Jin police, so we can't report these things to their own people. Have
2: you had a personal encounter with a gin?
4: I have, and uh, that's in the form of shadow people. Um, I do think that shadow people are a shape-shifted form of, of gin. And uh, I have had um, communications uh, through real-time EVP with some of the devices I use we've talked about on the show before, the Frank's Box kinds of devices. And uh, sometimes I've had poltergeist things happen in my house after I've been working on a gin case, and um, I think that they're responsible for that as well.
2: They leave an unusual calling card, as I recall.
4: Well, in one case, they they left me a pile of rice uh, in a parking lot. Um, I had a case where um, the, uh, the gin presence was leaving loose rice and piles of rice in the victim's home, and um, I had some rice uh, as well. I've also had coin a uh, small coins like pennies, nickels, and dimes that have uh, uh, appeared in strange places in my house. But fortunately, I'm not as severely affected as the people that I investigate. I seem to have a pretty good buffer around me. Uh, I just simply wouldn't be able to do the work if, if I were easily affected.
2: Are you, going to, uh, are you going to head up to Winnipeg, maybe, and investigate this case further? or
4: It's uh, not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, there's a lot going on in this case, and it involves other members of her family as well. Uh, oh, another thing that the uh, Jin uh, was doing was um, uh, giving her bad dreams that members of her family were going to die, oh, and Lord. I've had other cases like this, too, where um, it's Part of their psychological warfare to keep people vulnerable and upset, that they will um, make dire predictions that members of their families are going to die or be killed in horrible ways, and that nothing happens, but the victim is very upset and constantly worries that uh, the threats will come true.
2: Well, uh, keep us uh, updated on this uh, this Winnipeg case, uh, Rosemary, and. Um I don't know. If uh, if you are in communication with them, uh, you could certainly extend an invitation uh, if they'd like to, to join us on the radio. Uh, and you and I can discuss with them further if that's something they want to do. If not, I would totally understand that, too. They've got enough to contend with.
4: There's quite a lot going on, and uh, I do need to uh, do some more investigation on it. I think there's a lot more to be uncovered here. And uh, pro- I'll probably have an update for you in a while, Richard.
2: All right. So in the meantime, we'll talk to you next month.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal researcher. All right. When we come back, the former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine. Well, he's done it again. He's got another blockbuster book out. This one, Tying Together the Alien Abduction Phenomena and 2012. Frank Joseph, when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. Welcome back, my next guest. I guess you would call him a prehistorian. Uh, He's uh, the author of more than 20 books, uh, including these titles, Atlantis and Other Lost Worlds, New Evidence of Ancient Secrets, Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America, The Lost Kingdoms of the Adena, Hopewell, Mississippians, and Anasazi, Atlantis in 2012, The Science of the Lost Civilization and the Prophecies of the Maya. Uh, The list goes on and on and on, Uh, Lost Civilizations and Secrets of the Past. Uh, Well, his latest book. Um, uh, combines the interlocking worlds of flying saucers, alien abduction, pyramid power, the Mayan 2012 calendar, and astronomy. It's called 2012 Alien Revelation, and although it's a work of fiction, it's based on, I understand, an actual case. Frank Joseph, how are you?
5: I'm just fine, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me, although that's a very hard act to follow. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, very famous and... Uh, really, quite authoritative voice uh, in her field.
2: Well, we love Rosemary, but uh, Frank, I um, I would say that um, sort of in the pantheon of uh, great guests. I mean, I get more email from people asking when are you going to have Frank Joseph back on, uh, and so this is a a um, a command performance. Oh
5: my goodness! Well, I'm. I'm surprised and, and quite flattered. I'll, I'll do the best I can. tonight, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, this
2: is 20, uh, 2012 Alien Revelation is your first uh, your first piece of fiction, but I mean, you did you had a reason for doing that, right? This is yes, I
5: did. I, I've never considered myself a novelist in any way, uh, although I enjoy reading fiction. But I was presented with um, an abduction case, uh, which was to me absolutely astounding. Um, until I. Was familiar with this case. It was presented to me some years ago. I really didn't take the alien abduction phenomena seriously. I thought that, not that these people were lying necessarily, but that there was some psychological explanation. I I thought for what they were undergoing. Uh, but what happened was, is I I, ha- I had a friend. I still have a friend. He's a very close friend. Matter of fact, he's he's about my dearest friend. And he and his uh, family. Uh, His his wife and kids are very much a part of my life. And uh, I was shocked because uh, he told me, um, confidentially, that he had been abducted under an alien uh, presence, I guess, uh, the only way to describe it, all his life, um, repeatedly. And if anybody else had told me this, I would have absolutely rejected it. But I know that the man is... his integrity is beyond question, and as somebody that I've known since he was a child, and so to hear this from him I thought was really outstanding. But beyond that, the, the story that he shared with me, and it's, it's quite long and quite complex, uh, was like un, any other that I, unlike any other I've ever heard before or, or researched since, although it's similar to a lot of the others. It really was quite different. And it affected not only him, but his entire immediate family when he was growing up, and even his first wife, as a matter of fact. So I, I asked him if I could write this up. I thought, God, this really needs to, to get out. But he was very sensitive on the, um, the possibilities of repercussions, not for himself so much as for his family. So he said that he would share with me everything that he could remember Um, but only if I would write it up in a um, fictional format. And as a consequence, I wrote this novel, 2012, Alien Revelation. It's mostly true, although I had to change names, of course, and places, and it's not in the same part of the country, it's in the United States, but it's not where it's really portrayed as. But the the facts and the the descriptions of it are, are exact. His recall of it is is also uh, astounding. In a way, his life was ruined uh, by this experience. Uh, it's a testimony, I think, to the, the human capacity for regeneration, actually, and for inner strength that he turned out uh, to be really a quite uh, wonderful, upstanding citizen. But, uh, good Lord, the, uh, the, the torments that he went through, literally from the time he was born, possibly even before he was born, Wow. Until uh, his 30th year.
2: And how long had he kept this from you? I mean, when did he divulge this bomb? Well,
5: it's it's kind of amusing in a way. Uh, We had uh, gone to a party uh, with his family. I think uh, somebody in his family was dating somebody they were going to marry and so forth, but it didn't turn out. Something minor like that. We were at a party, and he had a little too much to drink. Not too much. He was not inebriated or drunk, but he was loosened up. And... uh, in the car coming home, um, I was there with also, also members of his family. There were, I think, about five of us in the car. And he said, he says, I just have to tell you all this something. I have to tell you. And uh, we were mesmerized in the hour ride coming home. And uh, I, so I later got the full story from him. He was, after he, uh, the next day, he was kind of reluctant that he had shared that. Uh, the, the reaction from the the family was interesting, too, because they mostly went into denial, (laughs) or just forget about it. (laughs) It didn't really happen. Not that they questioned him. Nobody could, because uh, Jonathan Brady, as he's described in the novel, is a very upstanding person, so nobody thought he was lying or he was crazy or anything. They didn't doubt his sanity, but they just sort of tuned it out, you know, like, oh, it didn't really happen. It was an interesting human phenomena there, too. But the following day, uh, he did arrange for me to have a series of interviews with him and also his wife, who uh, was one of the few people who actually uh, saw what was going on and had memory of it, which is really bizarre, because everybody in his immediate family, including some of his friends, witnessed his abductions.
4: Oh, abductions.
2: that is very, very rare. That is but very they, rare. But they,
5: but they have no recollection of it, none, absolutely none.
2: Now, everything, uh, uh, Frank, I know about the alien abduction phenomena. I, you know, I've I've learned from reading or meeting and speaking with people like Dr. David Jacobs or John Mack or Jim Sparks or uh, and some uh, abductees. I mean, is is your friend's case sort of um, a typical? Does he tick all the boxes in terms of of sort of the um, the the commonalities of alien abductions?
5: There are many commonalities. Uh, the most obvious is what these, uh, creatures look like. They, he described them as, uh, two types, two physical types. Uh, the one physical type is the gray, which everybody is mm. familiar with. Uh, the little spindly characters that have, uh, little or no mouths and, uh, large dark, dark almond eyes, which may be a suit and a mask, by the way. May not be what they really are. That's been suggested before too. So they looked at, and then the other uh, type is described by Whitley Strieber. This was interesting. Uh, Whitley Strieber describes these little blue uh, blobby guys, uh, like little, like stocky midgets. I guess the only way to describe cross between SpongeBob and and a midget. Hmm. And they they carry around these long batons. And these guys are like cops. They enforce discipline when. Um, the abductee is aboard these craft, and they enforce the discipline through these pain sticks. That's the only way to describe it. Um, as far as, far as uh, that's a real commonality. so he's seeing the same thing. He's not seeing uh, some totally uh, different creature, and it was a, a, a unrelievedly uh, unpleasant experience. There uh, was no, uh, nothing happy about it at all. And um,
2: is he taken at night uh, in his bed? Uh, you know, missing time.
5: Yes, there was a lot of that too. Missing time. Um, that that was not. A, he he got to to get so used to it. He thought for some time that it was just part of some fault in his own nature. You know, he was forgetful or something like that. But then he, he realized. Of course, he grew up with this this idea of missing time. I mean, literally, since he was very very small, his earliest recollection. Of being abducted goes back when he was about three or four years old. He might have been there. Are indications that he might have been abducted before that. Um, the interesting thing is that his family was like totally a totally normal family in every regard. Uh, nothing special it happened uh, in their lives. Really uh, distinguished themselves from any other Americans back in the 1960s. He was born in 1961. And that's true. That's in the, in the book, and he was born in 1961. Uh, but when his mother became pregnant with him, uh, an incredible series of bizarre paranormal activities surrounded the family, all during her pregnancy. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, pointless. it would appear pointless uh, paranormal episodes, like his mother, who had never had anything like this before, uh, while she began to carry him was was having uh this I- incredible uh premonitions of uh the dinosaur show <laughs> she was able wow. to uh repeatedly <laughs> week after week for for literally months throughout the summer of 1960 uh, 1960 uh was able to Tell in detail what the Dinah Shore show was going to be like, and this is in the days before videotaping. Right, right. And uh, what was so remarkable?
2: It went out live, and that was it.
5: It was live.
2: Unless you got live. the cineScope and version. And what
5: was yeah. so incredible is that uh, his mother even predicted on one occasion that there would be a minor uh, accident on stage. Of course, like you say, it was live, so they couldn't cover up and where, where Dinah Shore slips off the swing that she is on. And uh, these guys around her are singing, and they catch her. You know, and she makes up for it. It's a minor nothing, but she predicted that that would happen. Uh, and then there were sightings of these uh, strange doubles. Uh, his brother, his older brother, uh, who was, I guess, about about 15 at that time, um, he saw this uh, a, a look-alike, uh, a double of himself, Uh, completely dressed in white, and the figure was not only dressed in white, but the same tone and color as this figure's skin. It was very bizarre stuff. Um, There were instances of uh, large boulders, literally boulders, large stones being moved around the house um, that nobody could see how they could possibly be moved. Uh, The family was very Catholic, so when these boulders would move around, they thought it was somehow demonic. And they would go out and plant crucifixes in, in these boulders that had been moved, and then they come back and find the crucifixes snapped off and destroyed. Oh my they contacted uh, their Catholic priest, who was totally mystified by everything he had uh, he blessed everything and said prayers and all that. but the paranormal activity continued. that was about the scariest thing when the crucifixes got smashed and broken off, and the stones would appear uh, nothing. Uh, very bizarre activities, and then with the birth of uh, of Jonathan Brady—that's his pseudonym in the book—the um, paranormal activities uh, pretty much seemed to stop for a while. Uh, but his earliest memory of being abducted was when he was three or four years old. He's not quite sure; could have been could have been four, three or four, where he used to complain to his family about what he referred to as. The evil clowns. He would go out and play in the backyard, and these wicked looking little guys would come and play with him. And he did not want to. They didn't uh, harm him in any way at this time. Apparently, they did not. There was no physical abuse uh, at this time, but he was afraid of them, naturally. And he would sometimes run in the house. And his older brother and sister would make fun of him, you know, either he's he's, when he's, a, he's scared of the evil clowns. Let me him.
2: just stop you with the evil clowns. We'll, we're going to take a time out here in a second. Yeah. But uh, um, I seem to recall reading, and this is uh, uh, true, that, and I don't know if this list was compiled by uh, Dave, David Jacobs or John Mack or some other alien abduction researcher, but um, many of us have this inexplicable fear of clowns and that apparently is one of the potential symptoms of someone who has been abducted is this fear of clowns. So, um, in fact, my mother-in-law tonight was just commenting on her fear of clowns. I don't know where that came from. Uh, maybe I saw her on the Dinah Shore show. I don't know, but Frank Joseph will come back. We'll, will delve further into this, a uh, fascinating case of alien abduction. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. Uh, I'm anxious to learn how someone who's dedicated his life to studying sort of pre-Columbian history of America is able uh, to, to, to work this information of this phenomenon into the Mayan calendar in 2012. We'll find out. Frank Joseph, my guest. Stay with
1: us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. And Frank Joseph stays with us uh, talking about 2012 Alien
2: Revelation. Now, uh, um, going into the break, I mentioned this, Frank, but here you are, someone who's you know written 20-plus books on prehistory, the pre-Columbian Americas, and so forth. What, what are you thinking about this as you're hearing this? What are you saying, well, what am I going to do with this information? Well, you
5: know, that's a, a really a great question because it was a, a total mental wrenching for me. Uh, my my mind is really mostly interested, uh, taken up with the past. I want to find out our roots, our origins, uh, where we came from and so forth. I don't really speculate on the future too much or I'm too busy writing history books. And now here is this thing which is, uh, has nothing to do with uh, the ancient past, it would appear at first, but deals with uh, an intelligent life system uh, far beyond our place, and uh, it, was, it was a shock. As I said, I, ha- I can't emphasize this enough. If I had heard this from any other person other than my wife, I suppose, or my mom or something like that, uh I would have just totally dismissed it or felt like, well, oh, that's interesting. But when you have someone in such authority, an authority figure telling you that it's to me it was like you know the President of the United States or something making a national announcement it was on that same level because uh, it was a very intelligent uh um, well spoken person successful uh, advertising executive. Great family man and all that, and uh, it was it was quite a shock, so what really shocked me as the, as the interviews went on, finally something about that I could contribute to or at least understand was when there was this talk of the Mayan calendar started to come up, and that was that was a shock too, because I had been investigating the Mayan calendar long before it became popularly known. I first learned about myself in 1986 when I was doing during my earliest uh, archaeological trips to Yucatan and Mexico and Guatemala and Belize and all those places. And while I was in Uxmal, which is the most beautiful of all the Maya ceremonial centers it's in Yucatan, back in 1986, it wasn't as much visited then as it is now. There was no airstrip. You couldn't fly in. Uh, you had to take a rickety old bus and so on and it was there that I got a chance to meet with some Mayan elders. I really lucked out. And um, they introduced me to the Mayan calendar for the first time and told me some things about it. They don't know all about it either. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I've been studying it ever since 1986, so when I wrote the book about it a couple of years ago, it wasn't something I was trying to cash in on, uh, something that I'd known about for some while. And here, uh, now in this Story that I'm hearing this more than a story, an account actually of prolonged series, lifelong series of abductions. The uh, Mayan calendar starts coming up. So it was, yeah, it was disturbing, yeah.
2: And in in what in what context, Frank, did the Mayan calendar come up in your your friend's abduction story?
5: He knew something about it, but he didn't know how he knew about it. It's important to understand that when he was on board their craft, I don't, I'm, I'm at a loss for words here, I don't know how else to explain it, their vehicle, or whatever you want to call it, um, they, they treated him like he, in the same way that you would, regard, that you would treat uh, a microscopic specimen, I mean, uh, like a fly, you would probably have more compassion for a fly than they had for him or for other humans that they were abducting and are abducting. And so there was no communic- there was no communication between him and them, no rapport, except on two occasions, through his entire life, only two occasions. Otherwise, they treated him like a piece of meat, uh, just a, a, a science experiment, uh, a, a, a collection of a bag of chemicals. That's about the only way they... And uh, on one occasion, this was when he was... Uh, if I recall correctly, I think about 19 or 20. And uh, the inside of the vehicle is kind of important for me to explain this and accept this. It was He's described the inside of the vehicle as always extremely dark, very poorly lit. You can barely make out anything. It's very bare, it's cold, and he has no clothes on. He's totally naked. He has no idea how that happened. And he's sitting on this cold steel bench and... Um, terrified, just uh, frightened. Nobody, it's utterly silence. not a sound at all. And um, this one occasion, one of these beings, one of the greys, approached him with two other creatures. Um, they looked human, but they weren't. They had human torsos. From the neck down, they looked totally human, but uh, their heads and their, their faces were not altogether human. And uh, so this being uh, spoke to Jonathan, not in words. Everything is telepathic. There's, there's no, no sound. There's no speaking. They have complete uh, mastery over human consciousness. Not complete, uh, like almost, like 98 percent, 97 percent control over human consciousness. And um, so this being, uh, this gray, accompanied, accompanying these uh, two. Females, humanoid type females, approached uh, Jonathan and said to him, uh, these are your sisters. And Jonathan looked at them, and uh, he said, these are not my sisters. And Jonathan in real life did have a pair of sisters, as a matter of fact. And and the, the gray said, seriously, no, these are your sisters. And for the first time, uh, Jonathan got very angry, and his anger overcame his fear. That's a, that's a common thing. Uh, if, you're, if you're so afraid, if you're really terrified, uh, sometimes you, you can hate the person that's causing you to be afraid so much that you lose your fear. And that apparently is what happened with uh, Jonathan. He stood up. Never, that's never happened before. And he said, look, they are not my sister's. And it was at that point where the gray actually uh retreated several paces and apparently in fear, and the two humanoids they just stood there, they were like zombies, and then one of these little blue dwarfy guys came up with his pain stick and touched Jonathan in the forehead with it and knocked him cold and The next thing he knew he was back in his bed with a tremendous headache Wow.
2: I wonder if that's where the Beatles got the inspiration from the Yellow Submarine for the Blue Meanies.
5: That's what ah. I'm going
2: to call them, the Blue Meanies.
5: That would that would fit that, wouldn't it? Yeah. So anyway, on that occasion, like that. Then the other occasion, now that was direct communication. Before that and after that, there was no direct communication. They treated him with other, other disdain, beyond disdain. Um, but somehow, he doesn't remember this, but somehow along the way, he became... Uh, Privy to information about the my encounter, which these uh, little nasties were either interested in or knew about or so it's rather it's it 's vague, but in any case uh, in, impressions uh, began to emerge, and uh, he became interested in the my encounter and learned a lot about it, and found out that some of the things that he learned were uh, very similar to what. Uh, he sort of imbibed. I don't know how did it. Can you give us, a,
2: for instance, things that he had learned on the craft that actually rang true?
5: Yeah, uh, that uh, the Mayan calendar, of course. Now, uh, probably our listeners have heard so much about it; they know more about it than I do. I uh, doubt it's that. It's supposed <laughs> to be uh, supposed to be this highly. It is, in fact, this incredibly complex. Uh, timekeeping device is what it really amounts to. I won't go into long of it because it's, it's pretty big. But the Mayan calendar is, is the mo- probably the most accurate timekeeping piece before the invention of the atomic clock. Maybe it's more accurate than that, as it turns out. But what's interesting is that the Mayan calendar, I'll make this as simply as I can, is really based on four historical events that took place. what the Maya believed. By the way, there is no Maya calendar. Uh the Maya inherited the calendar, they say, from their from a previous people, and they passed it on to those other Mesoamerican civilizations that came after them, like the Aztecs. The Aztecs had the same thing. Uh and they concretized it. They turned it into the Aztec calendar stone as it's erroneously referred to, but the Aztec calendar stone is really the Mayan calendar, or kind of a refinement of it. And so there's a Mesoamerican calendar, not really a Mayan calendar. The Maya had it, but they did not invent it, and they passed it on for refinement. But in any case, this calendar is based on what they believed were four global catastrophes. And these global catastrophes are described as having pushed human beings to the brink of extinction each time. And the, they're always referred to by the letter four, hyphen, whatever. Uh, the last catastrophe is known as four: hyphen water. The number four indicates the four cardinal directions. In other words, it's, a word, it's an indication of global. affected the entire planet. And they said that the last time it was a flood, before that it was a fire from heaven and so forth. the four they go back in time. In any case, though, they're also referred to by the Aztecs, these epochs these eras of global destruction, or near destruction, as suns, S-U-N-S. There were four suns in the past, and a fifth sun is coming this December 21st, which is the sunrise of the winter solstice. That's what the Maya and the Aztecs, uh, all the Mesoamerican people said. Um, It is a, a, a global event supposedly taking place, Will it take place actually as the sun rises on the winter solstice? Probably not. It could, but they're not really interested in that. They chose that date. It's an amazing thing how people living 2,000 and more years ago could have somehow extended their vision to our time, and they did.
2: And this is when the, the, uh, the, the equinox crosses the galactic equator.
5: That's correct. It's an event which has either happened once or twice, or has never happened before. Now, how could a people living over 2,000 years ago have foreseen an event, an astronomical event? Just take it on that alone. How could they have foreseen an astronomical event, which has never happened before, or has happened perhaps maybe tens of thousands of years ago, far beyond the capacity of a single people to uh, observe over time and to chronicle it? It's amazing.
2: It is, indeed. So what
5: the, what the Maya meant by that is not that something would happen actually on the winter solstice. It might, but probably not. What they meant in choosing that date was an allegory, because the solstice re- represents, the winter solstice represents, in the northern hemisphere, the longest night of the year and the shortest day. It indicates a time of uh, nighttime, darkness, fear, terror, all those things. And it's the longest one. So it's symbolic. It, it's symbolic of a global event, an event horizon.
2: A foreshadowing.
5: It is. And it means it represents really the best way to understand 2012, uh, December 21st, is to regard it as a kind of event horizon, not an actual event but that will signal, from that point on, the Maya would say, if I interpret for them, uh, they would say that that time will be looked back upon as a kind of a meridian uh, that, that, the, that the world will pass through. They do not predict the destruction of the earth. That has never entered in. They do suggest a great purging of mankind and a possible extinction. They do suggest that a possible extinction. They don't say an extinction. They're actually the, the only written record we have of the Maya calendar is on a sh, the walls of a shrine in Tortuguero on the Mexican border with Guatemala. It's a direct reference, a description of the Mayan prophecy for 2012 for this year, and it's 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 bad. It says that on uh, December 21st, when the sun rises. Uh, Bolon Yocte will descend out of the sun with his nine uh, cohorts or servants. Bolon Yocte was the Maya Satan. He was like the worst demonic conception they could come up with. Uh, absolute personification of uh, destruction and its worst possible aspects. Another never ec- pays us a visit, but when he does, uh, there's literally hell to pay on earth.
2: Another allegory for what a coronal mass ejection. Uh, For something, a
5: possibility, trouble with the sun. Yeah, the Maya are saying there's trouble with the sun.
2: Well, Um, you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, given this electronic age, what a coronal mass or a solar storm, uh, somewhat similar to the one that – uh, knocked out all of the, the telegraphs uh, all over the world back in the 1890s or whatever it 1859. was. 1859. 1859. Imagine that today, given our dependency on electricity. Power grids down, probably out out of service for years. We could be freezing in the dark.
5: Well, uh, apparently people believe that strongly enough at NASA because uh, in uh, January 2010, they launched the uh, most expensive satellite so far, is called the Solar Probe, and that satellite is launched primarily to monitor the sun for what is known as a Carrington event. A Carrington event is a mass eruption of plasma from the sun, which, if it hits the Earth in the way that it did in 1859, would literally fry our civilization. We would not be able to have this conversation on the phone. All electronics would be shorted out. The only way that something like that could be escaped is if The president of the United States, when notified, would command that all of the – across the United States, anyway – that all of the uh, power grid across the United States would be shut down. That would save the power grid of the United States, but it might uh, trip us into a full-fledged financial crash, given our fragile financial situation now, and it wouldn't necessarily save Canada or anybody else. A, a coronal discharge of that magnitude is not science fiction. It is, be- it is not only believed, it's absolutely assured that it will happen again in the future at some time. It could happen tomorrow, or it could happen in the next uh, hundred, few hundred years. It will definitely happen again. There have been Carrington events since 1859. There was one in the 1920s. There was another one in 1989 in your country, in Quebec. It shut, shut down Quebec for 24 hours. And there have uh, been other smaller events, but if a, a large one, like the one that took place in 1859, took place, uh, that would be really rough. And what's interesting about that, Richard, is that the sun's uh, capacity to create a Carrington event is associated with sunspots. And there has been virtually no sun- sunspot activity over the past several years, and astronomers are predicting major sunspot activity this year and next. Uh, that 's kind of interesting, that also kind of fits in with the Maya calendar. The Maya also suggested that well, they just really suggest there 'd be trouble with the sun. The only other trouble with the sun that we could experience is also what climatologists are talking about, and that is that we're headed for an ice age yes that we're We are just about due for it. It could happen again in the next couple of years maybe we're experiencing it now, some of them uh, feel, or it could happen the next 500 years. You know, As far as geology and climatology is concerned, that 500 years is nothing. But we are due pretty soon, if not little overdue, for a return of glacial conditions that uh, dominated the Northern Hemisphere uh, 10, up till 10,000 years ago. That's also trouble with the sun because that's what causes ice ages. Ice ages are caused because of the wobble of the earth. As, as we the northern hemisphere sort of wobbles away from the direct rays of the sun, the glaciers begin their march, and ice ages ensue. That's now understood to be the basic mechanism for ice ages.
2: Let's uh, wind this back to uh, our um, alien abduction. But before we do that, uh, I've got a very patient uh, caller on the line who wants to share an abduction experience, and we're going to um, uh, say hello to Mark uh, down in the old line state of Maryland. Hello, Mark.
6: Hello, Richard.
2: Hi, welcome.
6: Hi, thank you for your program. I wish you were on at least five nights a week, but here you are, and here I am every weekend.
2: Appreciate it, thank you, And Mom.
6: Uh, <clears throat> Yes, we're also the free state.
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, Maryland. Yes, or Maryland. I think it was Washington who called it the Old Line State. Uh,
6: yes. At, at any rate, um, uh, I don't, I don't know how to spell Frank's last name or how to reach him.
2: Joseph, just as as it sounds. Like,
6: like Saint Joseph. Correct. And and uh, for those of us who can't afford an internet service provider, is there any mailing address we could write to Frank?
5: Yeah, you can you can write to me directly, uh, care of uh, the magazine that I work for. It's Ancient American Magazine, and it's Post Office Box three seven zero. That's Colfax, C O L F A X,
6: uh-huh.
5: Wisconsin, five four seven three zero in the United States, I'd be, yeah, so and, and I answer all my mail.
6: There's much more than we can possibly discuss tonight, but briefly, when uh-huh. I was between the age of four and five, uh-huh. I woke up in the middle of the night, and my bed was surrounded by what I saw as, as large bowling pins, uh-huh. probably about five foot tall, uh-huh. in colors I had never seen before. And they they all moved in synchronized motion and went through the wall and I yeah. ran into my parents room where it would have gone through to it and they weren't there. Oh. And my mother said, "What's wrong?" and I said, "Where are the bowling pins?" And she said, "They're in your room, I guess." And I said, "No, the other ones." And I never saw those colors again. I I'm 55 years old and I saw these colors uh pre uh Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh. I didn't see them again until the late 60s when I realized they were fluorescent colors. Oh. These these bowling pins were in all were orange, pink, green, but they were fluorescent, oh. and I had never seen a color like that before or until they had black light posters. Uh-huh. And uh, of course, everyone I tried to explain this to said, "Oh, you have a wonderful imagination." Uh-huh. Uh, but. Uh, I, I continued to see them until I was in about the fourth grade, and then it stopped. And I wondered if I was a failed experiment.
5: Well, hopefully you were. Uh, a failed experiment? Well, no, not a failed experiment. You know, that's, you bring up two really interesting points. Uh, Jonathan Brady also talks about when he's on board this craft, there are fluorescent lights. Ah, interesting. But they're very dim. They're very dim, they're fluorescent, they're very metallic. They're colors that are impossible to describe. They Because I asked him, I said, well, they've got to be like green or blue or something. He says, well, kind of, but not really. Uh, so that's interesting. The other point is the reason why he was abducted, and, and this is one of the, the uh, conclusions I guess you can draw from it, is that a certain type of abduction deals with, well, whoever these creatures are, they want to know a particular human type. They're after a representative type. And apparently Jonathan Brady represented a a physical and psychological human type that they are after. Don't know why they're after this type, but this is the type they, they're most interested in. And they if they discover that the... Uh, person that they 're abducting does not meet meet this type uh, they lose interest immediately and there there's no more involvement if however the person is the, the type that they 're looking for uh they continue to use him until he 's no longer useful, and that is usually when he reaches his late twenties um, there's a that 's when they, they 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 lose interest in him and the type they 're looking for is a representative human type this fellow uh Jonathan brady is uh well, I guess he's about six-two. Uh, he's rather normal in all regards. He uh, he's an is outstanding, I suppose, uh, intelligence, and yet he's not a genius or anything like that. He's a kind of a representative human in in some regards. So if there's anything uh, peculiar about the person, this doesn't mean that they're inferior in any way. It's just that they're different. If they vary from that type, uh, then they lose interest.
2: So again the connection between the uh, abduction and uh, the Mayan uh, well not the Mayan calendar but 2012
5: mm-hmm.
3: and
2: the long count calendar. Yeah. Uh I mean were they giving him information or um uh, what what are your what are your thoughts on that? What was well, going on? Well I there?
5: asked him he's not he was not he is not sure how he he, uh, it's, he said that there's a lot of, uh, when he was on board, there's a lot of thought transference going on. Everything is out in the open. You cannot control your own thoughts. Uh, you're privy to theirs. Um, you know everything that's going on simultaneously. It's, it's, it's not like a conversation that you and I are having where words follow words. Everything is happening simultaneously. And uh, he did ask them pointedly several questions over time, and they... Always ignored him, but sometimes they would talk, sort of communicate amongst themselves about this human that was uh, interested in certain things, and he was sort of like trying to eavesdrop on them. Uh, You have to remember also that his recall uh, was, although very sharp and in many cases exact, other times it was it was vague. Uh, But as regards the calendar, that was the about the only. Uh, other specific, or about the only specific uh, topic that he could bring back. They were interested in that. Uh, they seem to be particularly interested in, in time uh, more than in space, and that's what he concludes. Uh, I, mean, I guess I'm giving away the book here to an extent, but they, he said that they are, uh, they're not space travelers in the sense that we understand they come from another planet, uh, they really are time travelers their their craft are temporal craft they they do travel through space but it's mostly through time they travel through space in order to go through time I know these are very difficult concepts to understand but nonetheless um, they have no uh, instrumentation on board their ship whatsoever except for their medical uh, laboratories they have they have some they have quite a few Instruments there, but there there are no uh, control surfaces. There are nobody straps themselves in or anything like that at all. Uh, There's the inside of their craft is uh, mostly uh, a hollow uh, sphere, very metallic, cold.
2: um, Right, you wouldn't. I guess you wouldn't need because you're not literally. I guess if if you're if you're um, uh, transcending time and space, you're not so much moving the space, th- uh, the ship through space. You're basically moving the space th- past the ship.
5: That's it. Uh, they did. Again, one of the, the few things that he picked up was he kept asking. You know, how do you possibly? He asked him a lot of questions, especially when we got in, in the high school age and adolescence. How can you possibly travel uh, many millions of miles? And uh, he remembers that one of them. Uh, Did sort of condescend to show him something when they asked him, or he asked them, you know, how can you possibly travel these distances? You know, it's impossible to go. And so he has a vague memory of this happening, and he doesn't know whether that they planted this in his mind or they actually showed him. But he kind of remembers that one of them came up to him, didn't say anything to him at all, with a piece of paper in his hand, a small, like a scrap of paper. Is a long, a somewhat long piece of paper, and there were two dots on the paper. That's all. It's like two ink dots, and so he shows Jonathan Brady this paper, and Jonathan looks at it and says, "Yeah, big deal." And then the the being folds the paper in which the two dots meet. And this was to be able to explain how they go through, how they go from one place to another. You, so are they folding space? Is that what he's saying? Is that the, But that was a sort of an explanation. So, right. So so anyway, Jonathan said, well, "How do you go from, from your planet to mine?" And so, or was it a joke? Maybe it was a joke. Who knows?
2: Uh, well, I mean, based on your knowledge of uh, Mayan prophecy and the and the Long Count cal- calendar, I mean, is there a connection uh, between? ufos and and uh and and 2012 i mean is there a mayan prophecy about alien invasion or ufos or anything of the sort
5: you can interpret it that way because uh these people that were or these creatures whatever you want to describe them that were abducting uh this young man from the time that he was very it was a possibly an infant all the way up until his 29th year they're very nasty they're very unpleasant creatures and Bolon Yokte, which is the the Maya construct of these guys coming down with their his nine servants from hell. Uh, who knows? Maybe they're talking about an extraterrestrial thing. You can you can interpret it that way. And there is definitely. Um, I I never took much interest in the UFO phenomena until all this happened. But there's definitely uh, been an increase in in uh, sightings and very credible sightings. That's been going on past several years. So maybe we are climaxing to something. We won't know until that time comes. I feel that there's definitely there's there's most definitely a connection between the Mayan calendar and the whole UFO phenomena, especially because these creatures are very interested in time. They're really they're interested in two things, it appears. They're interested in time, they're almost obsessed with it, and they're also interested in something everybody's known about and talked about a long time and that's human genetic material because that's why they were after jonathan brady they were removing genetic material from him from the time that he uh entered well, he became um, was becoming a man when he was an adolescent you know when he was a boy they were examining him all the time they would they would uh, painlessly they didn't they never hurt him when he was a kid but they scared him but uh they would take him on board and uh they uh, would examine him very thoroughly, go, go through a medical exam like you couldn't believe, and uh, but they hadn't heard him. But when, when he got to be about 13, uh, 12 or 13, uh, then they began to do some very nasty things to him. And I I don't want to offend our audience by explaining but they are in the book. Because, yeah, I, part no, of I the think
2: story. those of us that are familiar with the phenomena know about you know the probing and the prodding and the... Uh, Yeah, it's basically... It was was more than probing and prodding. Yeah, it's the frog in biology class all over again. Yeah,
5: and no anesthesia, none.
2: Frank Joseph uh, is with us, the author of 2012 Alien Revelation. Uh, I mean, Quetzalcoatl, uh, um, Quetzalcoatl uh, I guess is more of a... Is he an Aztec deity or a Mayan deity? Is he shared by all of those Mesoamerican cultures?
5: He is known as the feathered serpent. Yeah. When he's called Quetzalcoatl, that is what he was known to the Aztecs. The Maya referred to him as Cuculcan. And he was known by n- numerous other uh, cultures in Mesoamerica. It's always a feathered serpent. And his relationship with the calendar is a very benign one. Uh, he's described as this uh, tall, uh, handsome figure that arrives with his family and followers after after the... Uh, destruction of uh, his homeland by the fourth, it was called four water that I mentioned. This is this global f- deluge that supposedly took place, and his kingdom was uh, destroyed. And he, is de- this is what the Maya say now? This isn't what I'm writing about. So the the Maya tradition is in a, something called the Popol Popolva, which is the Book of Council? This was Maya cosmology that was all put together. You can get a copy of it from Dover Press anytime you want. And the Vuh talks about the Feathered Serpent arriving with his family, his friends, his followers, after the destruction of his homeland called Pato Tlan. It sunk under the sea, and he arrives on the shores of Yucatan with all this high knowledge, and he he does not o- lord it over the native peoples he he shares it with them, he educates them, and Maya civilization is a synthesis they say of uh, the the labor that was contributed by the native people of uh, Yucatan and uh, the high technology brought to them by the feathered serpent and the high technology included the calendar this h- the highly advanced mathematical construct, so everything associated with um, the Feathered Serpent, Kukul Khan, is uh, very beneficent and, and wonderful. It is in the Maya calendar, however, it says that it will end, the Maya calendar, and time will end. That's basically what they're saying. The time, more than basically saying, they are saying it literally, that time will end. Uh, the calendar will conclude, this long calendar that's been in service for thousands of years, um, the 21st of our December uh, this year. And that's when Bolanyote, this satanic figure is supposed to fly out of the sun, uh, or the center of our galaxy, actually, uh, with his nine servants of hell, uh, to wreck uh, the fifth sun here. All right. Now, the Maya did say that it's not inevitable, by the way. They said human beings can escape this. And The way we escape it is that we have to completely reorient our civilization. and We have to um, back off from self-destructive practices, and we have to align ourselves with the perceived laws of nature. This doesn't mean we all have to become saints or even good people, but we have to reorient our culture. Um, that, and this is, the Maya said that there was a, a inextricable link between human behavior and natural phenomena. Now, it's very difficult for people to understand that today or to accept it, but nonetheless they said that these four previous world catastrophes took place because human beings were so out of sync with the forces of nature that brought them into existence. Hubris. Nature man. snapped back on them and caused these cataclysms. And they and they said that this will happen again inevitably if humans are out of sync as they were before. And the, the Hopi Indians have exactly the same thing. They, they call it Konaskotsky. They made that famous movie a few years yes. ago about more than a few years Godfrey ago. Godfrey Reggio, yes. Right. And Koyanaskotsky means world out of balance, and it's the same thing where a society is out of balance with the natural harmony and it collapses, and, um, either internally or for, for something else.
2: Well, hold on to your iPads and your Wii joysticks, because something wicked this way comes, methinks. Frank Joseph, always a pleasure. Listen, I know you've got a, uh, another book coming out, I believe, uh, next month or very soon. We're going to have you back on to talk about that. This is about incredibly advanced technology in, again, pre-Columbian America. Yeah, (laughs) Can't wait for that conversation Okay, Frank, thanks for this
5: Thank you very much,
2: Richard Frank Joseph, Ancient American Magazine Always a pleasure to have Frank on Thanks to David Gaskin for production Uh, Back next week with a brand new show Hope you'll be aboard for that And in the meantime Again, sending my love and my prayers out to the mighty Aphrodite Who is on her way to Athens As that uh, country hopefully has settled down a little bit Her motherland I love you, my Valentine